Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. I heard of uh, Bing West long before uh, I met him and then had the opportunity in 2004 when he came to Iraq. Uh, and I was working for General Mattis, uh, which, you know, General Kelly was the assistant division commander. Colonel Joe Dunford was the uh, was the chief of staff. And uh, I had a chance to meet Bing and, and I've had him on the program uh, a couple different times as he's uh, uh, being the writer that he is. And uh, he joins us once again. So, First of all, Bing, uh, welcome back to All Marine Radio. Thank you very much for doing this. Well, thanks, Mike. It's my pleasure. The um, <clears throat> before we talk about the last platoon, uh, I, I hope you don't mind if we talk about some some current events because uh, you're no stranger to having an opinion. And sure. So, and so, um, the Marine Corps has made um, you know some some pretty substantial changes. Uh, you've been watching the defense of the nation uh, for a long time. And, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the, in the latter part of the 1960s, um, after experiences in, uh, Vietnam, you began to write and, uh, and, and, you know, rose very quickly to prominence because of your analysis and the things you had to say about the way the war in Vietnam was being conducted. Um, talk about this move by the Marine Corps. I've, I've, I've never seen anything that you've said about this in print. And so I'm curious, what do you think of the new direction of the Marine Corps? I, <laughs> I'm i on the fence um, because I haven't had a chance to talk to this commandant. Um, but what, what he has done is he said, we face a major competitor that we have to be prepared to go to war against called China. And that caused me in the first instance to say, what? And how are we going to go to war against China as Marines? And he said, we're going to be sitting on the islands offshore and we're going to be interdicting their Navy. Well, I think the Navy might last one week if we got into a war. But and therefore, maybe the commandant knows something that I just don't know at all. But the idea of having to launch missiles from close-in islands within, say, 500 miles of China um, it struck me as being okay, but we have to think about this an awful lot. And, and then the next thing is, and how do you get to the islands? Well, the Navy has to get you there. So is this a Navy-Marine strategic plan or was this – the Marines coming up with a strategic plan and now trying to persuade the Navy, which many commandants will tell you is very difficult to do. And then lastly, we have this thing called an administration, uh, President-elect Biden. So is the Marine strategy going to sync with the Navy strategy? Is And I'm both going to sync with the strategy that the President-elect Biden and the new Secretary of Defense Austin, assuming he's, uh, you know, assuming he becomes Secretary of Defense, all of that causes me to say, Mike, 
there's a lot of questions that are going to be asked about this going forward. So I think prudently I'd say it's daring, but there are so many missing, so many moving parts that I cannot definitively say I'm in favor of it and I can't definitively say I'm against it and I'm not trying to be wishy-washy. It's just that there are two unknown variables right now for me to come down conclusively on this. Got it. Um, The president has ordered um, just about everybody out of Afghanistan. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Well, your book, uh, The Last Platoon, is centered on uh, on Afghanistan. Um, You've obviously been an observer and and uh, and had opinions about our conflicts. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, in, in my novel, I make it quite clear. Uh, anyone reading the book would say, I know who that president is. And in the last platoon, I spent the last two years writing that because I was so ticked off about what we did for 20 years. I had written a, a prior book called The Wrong War, where I just said, hey, we're not doing this right. And then I wrote another book, called One Million Steps, where I was out with a platoon with 3-5, and Kilo 3-5 with the third platoon. That They started with 52 Marines and were out there, and they ended up with 26. They, they had two or three KIA, but they had nine amputations, and they had 17 gunshot wounds. And I kept asking myself the entire time, and I'd be talking to the generals, I'd be talking to the Secretary of Defense, et cetera, and I'd be saying... What are we doing? And I kept asking this year after year because I had been in Vietnam. I had a combined action platoon. And they were giving me back this stuff about this is like Vietnam. No, it wasn't. No, it was not. The Afghanistan, you were dealing with Islamic tribes who disliked each other, hurtling headlong into the ninth century. And we came out with this. Navy, Marine Corps, Army doctrine of counterinsurgency saying our soldiers and Marines would be nation builders as well as warriors. No, they're not. What does the average corporal, the average PFC know about building a nation? Our State Department doesn't know how to build a nation. How do we expect our troops are going to know how to do it? And so I was out there year after year on the ground with the different platoons, and I, I just got fed up, and that's why I wrote this novel, the last, the last platoon, because I set a platoon down in Helmand Province, uh, in a Marine platoon, and they're just supposed to be there protecting an RD base for a short amount of time, just like we do in Syria, just like we do in Iraq, just like we have done in Afghanistan. And then some CIA people come down, very competent, supposed to be a small op over in a week. And then all hell begins to break loose, and so I tried to trace it back to what the president and the secretary of defense were thinking in the book. And what were our secretaries of defense? What were our presidents thinking when year after year after year, for 20 years, they kept saying, go over there and, and sip tea with the, with the mullahs, and the mullahs will be your friend. It was nuts. I mean, you know, so... I, I have a strong opinion about that because I have 20 years experience with it. So with the new commandant and what he's saying about strategy, I, I'm, say, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Of course I should. And I'm very careful about what I have to say about that. 
But in my book, The Last Platoon, I make it quite clear what I think. Uh, we, we were crazy in what we thought we were doing because the top was disconnected from our troops. Well, as somebody who spent a year of my life there, um, I, I, it's a head scratch to me. I, I, I think everybody understands why we went there initially, right? Because uh, we needed to go there after what happened on 9-11. Um, Bing, did anybody ever give you a good answer in terms of the expansion of the ground war to create something in Afghanistan that's never existed on the face of the earth? And if Germany and Japan post World War II were, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 year occupations, Afghanistan would be what, 260, 250 to create that? I mean, have you ever got a good example or, or a good explanation as somebody who, 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 who fought in a conflict, right, and then coming out of that we said never again will we do this, never again will we embark on this kind of an errand. We won't ask people to give their lives for that. Um, yet we seem Don Rumsfeld stars as Robert McNamara. We have consecutive chairmen and CENTCOM guys who, who don't have force, phase four articulated, so we don't even know what the end state looks like. Have you ever been given an explanation of why did we expand the ground war in Afghanistan? Um, I'll give you what the generals consistently told me. Okay. And But before I do that, I have to say, Generals come in, in, in four varieties. There are the one stars who just made it, and they're generally very cautious, and only 50% of them make it to two stars. The two stars have more degrees of freedom, but they still consider themselves very junior. When you get to be a three star, you, you become very comfortable. And if you make four stars, which only a few do, then you become equivalent to a cardinal in the Catholic Church. And what happens, and, and everyone listening knows about what I'm going to say, we all know how a four-star general never travels by himself. He travels with three or four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other guys. And he has a personal security detail, and he has, you know, people keeping his calendar every 15 minutes, and everyone says, yes, sir, no, sir. But after a while, I am absolutely convinced what, what sets in is an honest belief that they know more. They don't start out that way, but they end up that way. And I've seen it too many times. And the same thing happens in the White House. I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense, and I also I, I knew several Secretaries of Defense, went to the White House many times. When you walk into the White House, I don't care who you are, you walk down those corridors and they, the, the, the rugs have to be three inches thick. And there are these old portraits on the wall um, by Ansel Adams and others that show the traditions of America. And it's small. The White House Situation Room is very, very tiny. The Oval Office isn't as big as you think it is. And suddenly you, you realize, I'm at the seat of power. This is power. And then you become very careful what you have to say. And when you, I talk to the generals every year and I'd say, what are we doing? And they'd say, if only those civilians would give us more troops. So they had closed ranks around the idea that if we had put more troops into Afghanistan, we could have pacified the country. And I don't believe that was correct. But that's, their, that's what they will tell you privately. 
And then you go, then you go to the to the civilians, and they're all over the place. I mean, they have no consistency, and so they went along. No one, I, and again, it's because you choose your words so carefully when you're talking to a president that that no one told President Bush, who struck me as being a decent man, no one said to him, "Hey, sir, this is nuts." You, you, sir, believe in God. You, you, you have an evangelical religious belief. You said that we owe freedom to the Afghan people and therefore we owe building a nation to them. And, and some secretary of state should have said, sir, that is a religious belief that you have, but that isn't a policy belief for the security of the United States. As you said, Mike, we could have done it in Afghanistan, done it, meaning uh, somehow made Democrats or Republicans out of them, if we were willing to stay like we did in South Korea for 70 years, seven zero, ten decades, seven decades. But no one ever, to the best of my knowledge, looked the president, I the president, because President Obama continued, and said to him, yeah, we can do this, sir. We just have to stay over there with thirty or 50,000 troops in combat for a long, long time. Um, and after about 70 years, um, we'll, we'll have some sort of democracy over there. But, of course, they won't be economically uh, independent because they have no economic but drugs. So I believe the generals were unwilling to acknowledge they couldn't do it. It, because it, because nobody ever confronted the policymakers and said, you have undertaken a 70-year mission. I'm not an Ivy League guy, Big, but I don't think you have to read more than 15 minutes of Afghan history to know that, you know, the night before you go to that OPT, that you're, we're trying to stand up something that's never existed. You know, you have a nation of warlords uh, that run cities. You have a nation of, you know, of uh, of uh, sheikhs and whatnot, mullahs that run the countryside. And that's how Afghanistan existed. And and this concept of a national, of a nation of Afghanistan, is right, is completely foreign to them. I'm from Kandahar. What do you want? What are you doing here? I live outside of Marja. I'm a farmer. What are you doing here? What do you want? And so I, it just, it just to me is extreme. I, I don't understand. And, and, you know, it's immoral, right, to ask people to go die for something that you're not willing to stick it out and win. And, and we did this. And, and then the other thing that I find absolutely maddening is, um, you know, is, is this constant around the election, right? We draw our troop levels down. We announce that Obama did it. You know, I'm fulfilling my election promise, and then we, you know, and then we decide that, yeah, we're not going to leave that way, and then we go pay for real estate a second time. And it's just watching it, it's, 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 I don't know. And if I was a Vietnam veteran, I'd be really pissed because it doesn't seem like we as Americans can take our national power, economic, diplomatic, and military put it together to achieve our strategic objective. You know, we left Vietnam. We left uh, some, we left uh, Somalia. We left uh, Lebanon. 
And we're going to leave Afghanistan to what fate? None of us are sure. Why can't we seem to project our national power to um, to achieve our strategic ends? Well, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> the because you you just swept across history for the last 50 years. I know. It's a pretty broad brush. Yeah, but but you're right. And then you, when you try to put your finger on why, the, the, the fundamental, there are two fundamental things that leap at me, is that first, and I saw this in Vietnam too, uh, first, the generals at the beginning were never tough enough to say, Mr. President, if you want to accomplish that mission, this is what it's going to cost. And uh, Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, swore at them and cursed them. And, and I, I'm surprised that, that some of them didn't resign. He, he, was, he was a genuine bully and he bullied them and they didn't stand up. President Bush wasn't like that, but what happened in Afghanistan was that General Franks, who was the commander, he, gee, he, he had Al-Qaeda trapped in the mountains of Tora Bora within three months of when we went in, and our mission then was to destroy Al-Qaeda, and he had them. And they had General Mattis, who was only a one-star at the time, but Mattis had the commandos, the Special Operations Forces were with him um, in a miserable place down south near Kandahar. But he had a plan to take his brigade and to take the commandos and seal off the passes at Tora Bora and finish Al-Qaeda. And General Franks refused to do it. And instead, he tried to say the Afghan tribes could do it. Mm -hmm. He has never been held to account for why he did that. And we allowed al-Qaeda to escape into Pakistan. We didn't have to stop at the Pakistani border. The Pakistanis were scared to death at that point. And we were dealing with tribes up on the mountains. We could have crushed al-Qaeda and then gotten the hell out of there. That was a military mistake but then when we stayed, that was when President Bush said, we owe freedom to them. Now, at that particular point, I believe the CIA, the State Department, and the military all should have said, Mr. President, that's a 70-year, 70 70-year 70 commitment. And no one told them that. They, let them, they, they went along. They went along with it. So we've learned humility, Mike. I think we've learned humility the hard way. And, and going forward, I believe that our military now is going to be very, very, very careful about how they get involved. And I'm not sure what the next crisis is going to be. But I can say this, that wars are like hurricanes. They recur because of human nature, just like hurricanes recur because of weather. And the next war will not be a nation building against some ninth century tribes. The next war, I think, is going to be quite different. 
And I think the commandant has it right there. He's, he's looking forward because we're not going to repeat this mistake again. But if looking back, you ask me why we made these mistakes, I would say it's because we were so rich. We were so powerful compared to our enemies that we didn't believe we could lose. And we found out we could lose. Okay, one more question along this line, and then I, I want to. You recently wrote a piece entitled "How to Save Kabul from Saigon's Fate." I want, I want to ask you about that as we kind of, and then uh, and we'll begin to explore your book. Why you, uh, first of all, why you chose fiction and, and some other stuff that I'm okay. curious about. Um, why don't more general officers have the um, have the moral courage that Greg Newbold had? to say this is wrong and I won't be a part of it. And and it happened. We saw it in Iraq. We we didn't have enough guys. Don Rumsfeld, he ripped up the war plan. He wrote his own. We were going to zoom around with special forces guys and uh it was it was a loser. Yet, you know, we went down that road and everybody who served there ask any Lance Corporal, what's the biggest problem there? We don't have enough people. And we played charades for for years. Why don't we why don't I mean uh, we all got lectured uh, at one point in the Marine Corps about you know moral courage and doing the right thing or whatnot? Yet it doesn't seem like our generals have the same moral courage that they require from their lance corporals. Uh, why is that? I believe that there's a very thin funnel at the top. Or turn around and think of a pyramid. Okay. And it's very broad at the bottom. But when you get when you get up closer and closer to the White House, it becomes only a tiny handful of people. Um, and I have watched Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I will use the word, but they wouldn't. But I will use the word they jealously guard, jealously guard their access to be the spokesman and word of wisdom. So it's not like you have a lot of generals sitting around saying, hey, holy smokes, let's, you know, let's, let's get this thing squared away. It narrows down basically to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and practically no one else. And he's human. And he tends then to like the fact that he has all this power. And then without realizing it, he begins to to shade everything so that he really doesn't upset the president. He gets along with his colleagues and you can see them. They all become uh, uh, wise men afterward. They sit on the council of foreign relations. They, they earn hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars working for corporations on their board of directors. And no one ever stands back and says, you know, you lost, <laughs> you lost <laughs> because they become a gust at some particular level. Practically every four-star is august in his own mind and in the minds of those around him. And part of that's the military system because we all know, you know, the aides are kind of perfect guys. We, we, we know that. That's why they're chosen. And they, they guide their boss. And no one would think of having this kind of a conversation with a four-star. Yeah. He wouldn't tolerate it. He'd throw us out of the office before we were halfway finished with this. He'd say, who the hell are you to talk to me? <laughs> like that. And then you get up to the very top. No one walks into the president and just says, hey, Mr. President, this is dumb. Why don't we take a time out and really think our way through this? Look, President Obama didn't want to be in Afghanistan. 
And yet, ironically, he went ahead with a surge and then undercut the surge in the same sentence. And then I read the book by um, General McChrystal. It was nutty. I mean, McChrystal was saying, you know, okay, you lose a guy to an IED. Don't get mad. Have, have, have a couple of cups of coffee or a tea with the mullah and show him that you're a good guy. And then eventually he'll point out the IEDs to you. This is a four-star. And he, he gave a, a, a tactical, he, he put out a tactical directive to every sergeant under him about when you could use force. And, and, and if you could, if you were, if you were uncertain there were civilians in a compound where you were taking fire and you could, you were to retreat. The whole thing struck me as being arrogance at the top. Arrogance. It seems like at some point they they cease being military guys and they become themselves politicians. And well, there's, no, there's no doubt that happens, Mike. Unconsciously, that's absolutely what happens. Yeah. But look, let's also be honest about it. Most of the time, the military is not at war. Right. Most of the time, and most 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 generals have never been in combat right. and never walked on patrol and never seen the blood spurting out. I mean, that's just fact. Right. But every single one of them has had two fitness reports written on him every single year for 25 years before he becomes a general. You have to be very slick about, you know, because you, you work for a lot of different people. If you're an ordinary human being, you're going to piss off some of those people. <laughs> so you, you, you learn as you go up the ranks, you know, not to... You know, not to rock the boat. I, I think a lot of that happens. And so, would, would you would you disagree with me when I use the term high end high functioning conformists for general officers? Look, when you look at how we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, you have to agree with that, not disagree with it. Right. 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 And so, and so, the behavior that to go back to Greg, you know, Lieutenant General Greg Newbold, who who resigned as yeah. as the J three. And, uh, you know, just before we went into Iraq, because he said, I, I will not do this. Uh, to me, we need more people from that school who will look people straight in the face and say, Mr. President, I, I cannot do this in good conscience as your chairman, because this is a 70 year event. And yes. uh, right. you leaped up a little bit, though, because Greg resigned when he was the J3 ops. A couple of levels down, if you will. You, you see what I mean? Right. I don't. I don't think Greg actually ever actually got in there and talked with with President Bush. Right. No. No. I, I'm saying we need that. We desperately need. As a nation, we need that guy because if you look at the effect of Iraq, you know what have we done? We destabilized the entire Middle East. We destabilized part of Europe as the migrant flow, you know, flowed into Europe, and it's still it's still going. You know, and that that is that is the gift of of President Bush, and I agree with you. Seems no, I, I I would look at it a little bit differently, Mike, and that is that we finally did get it straight in Iraq. I mean, my book called "The Strongest Tribe" was when uh, Sheikh Sattar came over, and I was talking with him, and he 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 led the the Sunnis in saying we have to align with the Marines against Al Qaeda. Right. And I said to him, and this is about 2007, beginning of 2008. And I said to Satan, I don't get it. We, we've been, we've been, we've been fighting you, banging heads against you for three years. And now all of a sudden you, you're coming over to us. And he, he said words to the effect. He said, 
you know, you couldn't convince us. We Sunnis had to convince ourselves that you were the strongest tribe. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. He came over not because of, you know, lovey-dovey stuff, economic development. He came over because he looked around and said, who are the genuine toughest people? They're the the United States Army and the United States Marine Corps. And that's why he pivoted. So if if we had stayed there, and it was President Obama and, and Vice President Biden who insisted we leave, if we had stayed in Iraq, I believe it would have been much more stable. But, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Right. You've been there too long as far as President Obama was concerned. And President Bush deserved a lot of the discredit, too, because he agreed with the wacky guy who was the Maliki, who was the prime minister at the time, that um, the time had come for Americans to leave. uh, And he should never have done that. So anyway, you know, there we are. All right. Um, (laughs) The piece you wrote on November 16th, how to save Kabul from – from Saigon's fate, and for those of you who who who, who don't understand the phrase "from Saigon's fate," um, if you just do um, a search on the phrase "fall of Saigon," don't read anything. Just click on the pictures. Just click on the image tab, and go through the images, and you'll get a visual representation from the evacuation from the top of the embassy, from the boat people, and all the different things that happened at the fall. You know, at, at uh, what was it, Tonsonut Airport, and uh, you know, just the chaos that surrounded uh, Saigon. Um, so it was terrible. And, and I mean, I, I was I was with Secretary of Defense. I was the assistant to Secretary of Defense Schlesinger when that whole thing happened. It was the images. You're quite right. The images of all the Vietnamese panicked, and and us lifting off the last Americans from from the roof of our embassy while the Vietnamese are clinging. To the, to the skids and falling to their death as we're pulling away from them. The image around the world, and that's why I said, look, we, we can't leave Kabul that way. We, our, our, our self-worth, as we look in a mirror, and we're already divided as a country, would plummet. But around the world, people would say, oh, my God, those Americans. So the piece I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, I said, look, don't pull everybody out. Don't do it. We've gotten to the point where we are losing very few people. Many more policemen are being killed here in the United States of America than our own soldiers. And our soldiers over there are our Delta Force. They're our SEALs. They're really good at what they do. But we have spies everywhere in Afghanistan. And the Taliban cannot mass to take Kabul and, and because once they have to pull in on all the vehicles, etc., we have the targets. What we did in Vietnam was the Congress passed a law saying we would not bomb regardless of what happened in Southeast Asia, and we saw what happened. So I think we should keep about the number we have there now, it's a flexible number, it's teeny tiny, and keep bombing the terrorists every single day and and stay there. That's because we can afford it. And it, the alternative, I think, would be a devastating blow to our prestige around the world. So our fo- footprint were, 
you, the president, uh, or the secretary of the United States of Defense, or how about this, Bing? I'll make you both. So you're 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 both those human beings. What would your footprint look like in in Afghanistan? That would be a uh, I don't I don't want to use the word permanent, but would be for the foreseeable future a permanent president a presence in Afghanistan. What would it be? It would look exactly, I think it looked very much like it looks today, and that is that we don't know what it is. That is, we say we have 2,500 people. We have more than 2,500 contractors who are Americans, so we're over 5,000. Then we have all our allies there. They're another 5,000. So we probably have 10,000 allies in the country. We're flying air missions every day. No one knows where they're going, but no, but, it, but the Taliban never mass. We have special CIA teams and special SEAL and, and Delta teams, and they pull these raids and they kill the top people. And all this stuff goes on, and there's, the, the press is not out there with them. We're not losing casualties. I just continue with this. It, 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 it's not on the front page. It's not high cost. And we have to keep killing those terrorists because they still want to kill us. Got it. Got it. Um, when you look at the negotiations that are going on, um, I have friends that, that characterize their position as as cautiously pessimistic about the outcome of these negotiations and the future of Afghanistan. Uh, do you have an opinion about that? I think that's a fair assessment. If you negotiate and you've lost, you lose in the negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> the person who controls the ground <laughs> he doesn't care. We had negotiations with the North Vietnamese, and we signed a peace treaty with them, but we allowed them to keep their divisions inside South Vietnam. And <laughs> North Vietnamese said, hey, you want to make that kind of deal? I'm cool. You know, the, the, the Taliban, the Taliban will lie, lie through their teeth. Of course, the Taliban will agree to anything as long as we leave, right. then they're going to take over. Right. So uh, I, I would never, I would never, uh, finish those negotiations. They just string them out. But if we make negotiations that we are fully leaving, Taliban's going to win, and the country's going to fall apart. What? Um, talk to me. Let's talk about the last platoon, though. Um, well, I'm we finally got there, Michael. <laughs> well, no, you've been very great. Well, first of all, Bing, you have an incredible legacy of work. And you've been around the world more than a few times. And so uh, I would be remiss in my moral obligation to people who listen were, were I not to ask you about the most pressing issues in front of the nation today and uh, get your opinion. So I appreciate your indulgence. Um, the last platoon, why um, you talked about your motive for writing the book, but talk to us about you, you have this thing in your head and, 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 and you've watched this thing in Afghanistan happen. Why choose a uh, why a fiction the vehicle of fiction to do this? Because in fiction, you can tell the truth without everybody yelping at you. Um, well, hold on, explain that. What you mean? They yelp well, like, when anyone, you tell the truth. Anyone, anyone reading this book? Well, let me come back and come at it this way. The Cain Mutiny by Herman Welk was a terrific, terrific book. And after it came out and was a bestseller, they asked Admiral King, this is about 1947, and he had been in 
chief, chief of naval operations during the war, and they said, Admiral King, have you ever met the characters on the, on the, on the cane where the mutiny took place? And he thought for a moment, and he said, in my 40 years in the Navy, I've met every one of those sons of bitches, but not all of them together on one ship at one time. So what, what Herman Welk was doing, he was, he was taking different characters and putting them into a compressor to, to illustrate some of the moral tensions that always exist. And that's what I wanted to do by going to fiction. I wanted to indicate what we were doing didn't make sense, but I wanted to compress it just into seven days and then take a platoon commander who had great stakes in getting promoted and put him into that situation where he's trying to protect a tiny base, then overlay it with CIA people who are coming in with a distinct mission, then give him a colonel who's typical of too many colonels that you and I have known, and then bring in a president and a secretary of defense who've allowed this to go forward, but they're not really certain they like it, but it doesn't look like it's going to be that bad. And then bring in the Taliban, whom I knew, on the ground, who suddenly are facing this very small force. Then link it all the way back to Pakistan, because that's where the Taliban headquarters is. And then throw in avarice. I would have thrown in lust and sex, but I'm not good at it. So, you know, you know, my wife and my editor and everybody said, you know, don't do sex. You don't know about that kind of stuff. Stay with what you know, which is how you fight. What, so the, hell, what, what the hell? Your your wife said that? Well, yeah, more or less. You know, I wrote a, a sex scene and it caused giggles more than, you know, so that was the end. That was the end of the sex. And we got back, we got back to what is true, all the drugs, I mean, exports about $400 million a year in heroin. Afghanistan exports about $700 million. Altogether, Afghanistan accounts for 90% of the heroin and opium that are in Western Europe and Russia. And it all comes out through Helmand, goes into Pakistan, then into Iran, then into Balkans, and then into Russia and Europe. So I wanted to indicate the idea that we could go into Helmand, where all the farmers are fairly rich because they're growing poppy, and we were going to convince them not to grow poppy where they're going to grow corn or something, and, and, and that they weren't going to turn, that they were going to somehow turn against the Taliban, who were their cousins and their sons. I, I try to bring all that in and see the different motivations that are going on, and then watch this Marine, Captain Cruz who was taking this platoon and watch what he does, watch what the president does, watch what Tsar, who's in charge of the Taliban, do. And then what happens, Mike, with characters, once you put them in the situation, right. and I try to show the people exactly what happens when you go out on patrol and exactly why people die and how that fighting goes on, and you put them there, the characters run away with it. You, you, you're, no longer, you're no longer in charge of writing that book. The characters will say to you, no, nope, that's not what I would do. I would do this. And I noticed that the Marine, Marine Times and, and the Military Times just had an excerpt from my book, which was classic of where Cruz, who's the Marine uh, captain, they just had a success. And he's, he's out there with some Ascaris, some, some 
ANA, uh, Afghan National Army, that were with us at the time. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say I was you know, getting involved with, the book, with him at the time. And they had stolen some heroin packets. And he, his instinct initially is, son of a gun, I'm going to strip search them right now. No one's taking heroin, you know, and, and I'm going to make an example of all this. But they're on the battlefield, and, and they have been helping him in this mission and the CIA guys were a little bit wiser at trying to say to them, you know, Cruz, this isn't the time for that. And so I try to set up situations that uh, any any platoon sergeant, uh, any squad leader, any company commander, any colonel in charge of a regiment would look at and sort of say, ooh, what the heck would I do in a case like that? And so I... I let the characters, after a while, run with the book and see where it's going to take us. And it I can tell you, at the end, of course, all hell emerges. And it's, it's, it's a, you, you don't know who's going to stand up and who's going to fail. Did anything uh, in writing the book surprise you as you developed... Uh, as you develop the characters and because you've seen uh, the situation develop um, ad nauseum uh, you've seen it all over the all over the country uh, but in writing it um, as the as the plot evolves were there any were there any parts of it that surprised you in terms of the writing of it uh, absolutely the ending I I I saw the main character, Cruz, getting himself deeper and deeper into a situation where his sense of duty was being challenged and challenged, especially by a colonel who was on the one hand blaming him for the casualties, but on the other hand expecting that these casualties would stop and that Cruz somehow would figure out a way as the security platoon commander that they wouldn't be under attack anymore. And I could see that Cruz was, was getting himself in a position where he thought, I'm going to get an unstacked fitness report. My, my career is finished uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, this gnawing sense of duty that he wasn't doing enough and he had to do more to avoid what he saw was impending doom. So at, at a certain point, Cruz, Cruz just took over and he, he did what he was going to do independent of me as the writer. And it, I'm not, it doesn't end up, actually I was, I was really pleased. Um, General Neller, the commandant, right. he, he wrote a, he wrote a terrific review of the book and he said, do you mind if I read it? No, no. Do you have it there? I'm looking at it. Bing West is one of America's great combat writers. Whether penning history or action fiction, he knows what it is like to be out on the pointy end because he has been there and done that. In the last platoon, West tells the story of our nation's warriors with the hard, tough, and factual clarity ground combat is and will likely remain. A team of individuals overcoming their fears and emotions, working together to accomplish a tough tactical mission which becomes interwined with politics, international relations, and the complexity of interagencies. But that's what war is, right? Thanks, Bing, for reminding us 
of what it is to serve well and honorably. Robert B. Neller, the 37th Commandant of the Marine Corps. Yeah, I was I was really humbled by that because he didn't object when I brought in all these politics and indicated how it was getting in the way of the mission and what a mess it gradually became. He also said he thought it was kind of a kind of a bittersweet, sad book. And I, I thought Bob, maybe General Nello was reflecting back on you know some of the, some of that stuff. Uh, so it doesn't have. There's no rah-rah ending at the end of the the last platoon. It's the last platoon in Afghanistan. It sounds like you could um, you could change a few words, and this could be a Vietnam novel. Um. I, well, the book I, I I wrote two books about Vietnam. One was called Small Unit Action Vietnam, where where then the Commandant General Green and and General Walt, he was in charge of the forces out there. They as a captain, they they sent me to all the different battlefields to go into battle and then write what was really kind of a training manual for for the lieutenants going over. This is what you can expect. That was when we were fighting. And then I wrote The Village, which was about the combined action platoon that, that I was with that uh, spent over over a year in one Vietnamese village, and we lost seven of the 15 Marines. But when I went back to that village in 2001, they still remembered us, still remembered me, and they were happy to see us. Wow. There's, there's a difference there, Mike. Um, I believe we could have won the Vietnam War. Uh, if we had continued to bomb and not given the free pass, and if we had continued to give aid to the South Vietnamese while Russia and China continued to aid the North, but we cut off the South, if we had kept our end of the bargain, I believe that South Vietnam would be a flourishing democracy like Thailand today. But we got so tired and the politics were so savage, they were more savage than they are today, that the Congress cut the aid, just slashed the aid, and then said, we're never going to bomb again. So the the ending in Vietnam was self-imposed by us inside our internal politics here in the U.S. The ending in Afghanistan, I think, was beyond our control. Uh, that is, we could never get that close with the 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 is Islam's Islam, and we could never get that close with the Afghan tribes the way we did with Vietnam. So I think there there are distinct differences, Mike. If you're um, a lot of uh, a lot of Marines listen to All Marine Radio, and they will listen to this interview. If you're a, if you're a leader. Uh, and I don't care what rank you you wear. If you're a leader, why read this book, Bing? Because I show a leader cruise under terrific stress. He he's he's. I'm not going to give everything away, but he's failed. He he just was passed over. And then a general gives him an opportunity because he had seen him in the field. So he takes a platoon as a captain and, and he says, sir, this is, you know, come on, I don't want to babysit some arty tubes. And then the, the general says, hey, smarten up. I'm giving you a chance to get a fitness report. 
one-on-one. You're going to be the only guy out there, and it's going to make you look better because you're a good field commander. You're just not good when you got back here and, and did some of this some of this admin stuff. And so he, he starts out hoping he's going to be able to, to get a terrific fitness report. Okay, that depends on the colonel he's with. Then he's supposed to take care of the security, but he's the guy who's just popped up because the lieutenant who was going to be there came down with an appendicitis. He doesn't know that he doesn't know the troops. And the troops have a tough platoon sergeant. They don't think they need him. So and then they start making mistakes because Cruz has been in he's he's had four four combat tours. But now the kids were, were ten years after from, from being there. None of these none of none of the troops have been in combat. So he knows more, but he has to be real careful how he tries to get control of the platoon and, the, and try to persuade the squad leaders that he knows his stuff and the platoon sergeant on the one hand, while on the other hand, the colonel is looking at him and thinking, what the hell? You're supposed to be in charge of security around here. Why are the problems around here? So all through the book, Cruz is, is fighting not just the enemy, and the enemy is tough. He's fighting not just the enemy, but he's trying to, as a leader, get get the squad leaders to buy into what he's doing while the platoon sergeant feels a little bit hurt that he's been put off to one side. And at the same time, don't get so cross that he's going to get a terrible fitness report from the colonel. And so there's every, practically everything that Cruz faces is real life, and there's no easy answer. And sometimes he does it wrong. Sometimes he does it right. And that's where he runs away with the book, in my judgment, because after a while, Cruz was writing what Cruz was going to do, not what I was going to do as the author. And that happens a lot of times. And in the end, it gets down to his sense of duty, knowing if he does his duty, his Marine career is over. And that's the final decision he has to make. And I think that's why General Neller said, wow. Well, let me just, um, I have one more question for you, but I want to read uh, 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 General Zinni, General Tony Zinni's uh, uh, paragraph uh, in terms of, uh, uh, he wrote something about your book. Now, I, I call General Zinni the burning bush. Right. Because uh, to me, if there's a guy that I've seen in, in my career, my li- my lifetime as Marine, over the span of that time, being not afraid to take on anybody, be it Bill Lind um, or when we were doing maneuver warfare and uh, General Van Riper in public, uh, General Cindy, I mean, he was the guy, you know, uh, when we talked about initially going into Iraq, he said, look, I don't know what planet they're on. Right. And in terms of uh, in terms of the expansion of the ground war in Afghanistan, said we shouldn't do this. We've, we've done what we need to do. We need to leave. And so uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, I, I, I first was introduced to Tony Zinni when he was a colonel and uh, changed where I viewed my job, changed where I viewed the Marine Corps. Uh, he says this. Bing West knows combat, the Corps and the infantry. He's also a masterful storyteller. In the last platoon, he gives a raw, passionate feel for what warriors go through on the ground and the price they pay in blood to try to accomplish ill-thought-out missions. Anthony Zinni. So uh, those are some pretty decent compliments, Bing, from some uh, pretty high-powered intellects. 
and also guys who have a, a ton of experience uh, in terms of war fighting and and in the legacy of Vietnam, I think just as important is the wars you fight are the wars that you don't fight and the war you keep the wars you keep the nation out of and uh, and so to me pretty high praise for guys who've dev- from the guys who've devoted their life uh, to that so uh, so well done well done now can I, I want to ask you one more question okay <laughs> um, a lot hey, of about- it's about the Red Sox, right? No, I hate the Red Sox. I know that. Even though, even though my dad managed them, I, you know, I, let me just tell you, I quietly rejoice. You know, I, 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 I know. <laughs> I, I quietly rejoice when they just get hammered. And now, now the the Patriots, all things New England, when they get hammered, and and this is what I shared in common, or with General Kelly and 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 all these people from New England that I, that you know, General Dunford. Right, um, uh, Sergeant Major Bell. I happen to be. My fate is to always be surrounded by people from Massachusetts. Exactly. Oh, it's exactly. hell. It is literally hell on earth. Um, at least for me. But uh, um, no, it's all great fun most of the time. Um, we have a lot of uh, the line between being a general officer and being a politician has been incredibly blurred. You know, we've seen General Kelly in his, in his capacity as chief of staff. We've seen General Madison as the secretary of defense, guys who are generals and yet uh, involved in politics. And, and then in the last election, you know, we've seen so many flag and general officers involved in uh, very uh, high-profile political statements. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, you lived through the Vietnam era, and you've watched this. Your thoughts on all of that and what it means for – you know, the future of our civil-military relations. And we have a, another general coming in as Secretary of Defense. Right. Um, I believe I believe the generals have to have a come-to-Jesus meeting just with, them, with themselves. Um, I think they've gone too far. N- not people like John Kelly and, and, and uh, Jim Mattis. If you are asked to serve by the President of the United States, I think that you owe a deep obligation to say, if I can be of help, sir, I will be. And what I admired most about, uh, I admire many things about them, but John Kelly and Jim Mattis, when they realized the nature of how the President did business did not comport with their moral standards, both of them resigned and said, we're, sta- we're not staying. So I'm not talking about those who take certain positions and stay with their positions. I do believe overall, well, let me also say that neither General Kelly nor General Mattis uh, nor General Zinni would endorse any political candidate. So if, if you're willing to run for president or senator and you're a general, go ahead and do it. Um, but if, 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 if you're on the sidelines as a four star, I think you have to be, I do not approve of four stars endorsing presidential candidates, whether they be Democrat or Republican, because especially when you get 22 of them, 22 four stars are in favor of president Biden, et cetera. Well, what happens is if, if, if you're, in the White House at different positions and the generals come in and they're wearing four stars and you think for a minute, you say, wait, wait, 
this man within one year could could be retired and he'd be out there either, you know, endorsing the endorsing the person who's running against me. So then you become very careful what you say to generals because you believe that they are inclined to get into the political arena and use their word general or admiral. And and it, 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 it's as though people are supposed to pay special attention to them because they were a general and admiral when they talk and when they endorse somebody. I think that's very, very bad because it begins to, to undercut the fact that a general or admiral in our military will serve any commander-in-chief with a hearty, aye, aye, sir. I will carry out to the best of my ability your orders, period. Full stop. And, and, and so I, I, I am, you know, I'm not in favor of, of, of what I've seen endorsing. I, I just don't think they should do it. All right. What haven't haven't I been smart enough in this uh, in this hour that we've spent together to ask you about your book um, that you want to make sure people know? All I can say is it's it's my I spent two years trying to be as honest as I could be about what I saw on the ground when I was out there time and time again about what I saw about the enemy knew about the enemy about what I know from the corridors of power, being the secretaries of defense and presidents, and what I know about the CIA having worked, having worked with them too. So I, I tried to be as honest as I could be and also tell a good story. And I'll bet you as you read the book, you have no idea how it's going to end. Fair enough. Um, it was published yesterday. And yes. uh, we're fortunate enough to have... Um, you know, a legendary writer um, in my lifetime, uh, you know, has written so much about the Marine Corps uh, from the march up, uh, you know, whether it be the writing he does in uh, in publications like the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, I first uh, saw Bing's name and, you know, when I read The Village and uh, as we studied the Vietnam War. So, Bing, I can't tell you what it is, uh, uh, what a thrill it is for me to have you back on. And uh, I always enjoy our, our, our discussions. And uh, thank you very much for coming on to talk about The Last Platoon, available everywhere you can buy a book, just so you know. Um, and uh, all you got to do is, uh, is, is fire it into your browser, and you will see all the different outlets come up just in time for Christmas. Uh, Bing, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Semper Fi. Semper Fidelis. More of All Marine Radio coming up next right here on your home for it. The All Warrior Radio Network.